Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Greetings. Welcome again to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks for meeting me here at the intersection of politics and culture. You know, when I was a kid, and I go back quite a ways, admittedly, I and my family always tuned in on Sunday nights to Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, or the Wonderful World of Disney, whatever it happened to be called at the time, because the title changed a few times over the years. It was great family fare. We were always entertained. We were never disappointed. Because I grew up in the South, I didn't make it to Disneyland for the first time until I was about 12, but it was a magical experience, as it is for most kids. I went to the theater to watch Disney films that featured the best animation at the time. Disney was pretty much the center of family entertainment, if not the entertainment world, generally speaking, in that era. Today, Disney movies, shows, and parks are minefields of wokeness, which concerned parents have to navigate carefully to protect their kids from radical political messaging and grooming into gender ideology. What happened? Well, there's a 50-minute film, Walt's Disenchanted Kingdom, that's produced by the Catholic League Civil Rights Organization, which explores the Disney company's recent rapid descent into this gender madness. I reviewed it recently at frontpagemag.com. You can check out the review there or at my Substack account, which is marktapson.substack.com, or just search at substack.com for Culture Warrior. That's my newsletter. You can see the film for free on YouTube or at the Catholic League website, catholicleague.org. It's a must-watch documentary to understand how the formerly family-friendly entertainment conglomerate lost its way and is serving the dark agenda of gender activists to indoctrinate our children and fundamentally transform the culture. Speaking of Catholics and the culture, I want to mention another pop culture item in the news that actually ties into the Disney documentary. You'll see how later on in the podcast. Madonna, the now 64-year-old former pop star who built a career on the back of anti-Catholic imagery, is at it again. I hate to give her attention because it's clear that she desperately craves it, but she recently did a very disturbing photo shoot for Vanity Fair magazine, the photography for which is flat-out demonic. Madonna and a clutch of really repellent gender non-binary models sprawl about half-naked in a parody of The Last Supper, among other things. Madonna herself poses as the Virgin Mary, even as Jesus himself in a couple of the photos. I'm embarrassed for her, that at her age, she's still resorting to cliched anti-Catholic imagery to spark controversy and promote herself. But at the same time, she's considered a pop culture icon, albeit a faded one. So it's worth addressing as part of a larger cultural trend of the demonization, if you will, of religious faith and its replacement with a human-centered idolatry with an anti-faith. You'd think the secular left would be bored by now with mocking Jesus and Christianity, but they don't, because Christians are an easy target. You know they're not going to retaliate by launching a terrorist attack on the editorial offices of Vanity Fair. But Christians are targeted also, and mostly, because our God-centered worldview, our faith in, and humility before a transcendent creator who places moral expectations upon us, stand in the way of the radical left's human-centered vision of a world devoid of a universal spiritual truth. 
a world in which the nuclear family has been deconstructed and replaced with a collectivist community, a world of devotion to the all-powerful state, a world in which a moral code is replaced by an unrestrained sexual freedom and indulgence that's considered the highest personal good. The point is that our culture, in its fervent pursuit of knocking down all the moral, spiritual, and intellectual pillars of the greatest civilization in history, is going off the rails, and is leading that civilization toward a material and spiritual wasteland. And the Disney Company's current politicized incarnation is, tragically, part of that pursuit. So on that note, I'm going to bring on a guest today to address these issues and more. He's a real firebrand and a very interesting culture warrior himself, so please stay with us. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of the great conversations like the one we're about to have here at the intersection of politics and culture. And please leave a review if you like what you hear. Don't touch that dial. My guest today at the intersection of politics and culture is Bill Donahue, president and CEO of the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights, the nation's largest Catholic civil rights organization. Bill's also a former resident scholar at the Heritage Foundation, and he served for two decades on the board of directors of the National Association of Scholars. In addition to being the author of at least nine books and countless articles, Bill is a frequent guest in the media, sparring with left-wing talking heads in defense of religious freedom and rights. Bill Donahue, welcome to the Right Take podcast. Thank you so much, Mark. A pleasure to be here. And I understand you've been president of the Catholic League since 1993. Is that right? <laughs> That's true. I'm, uh, it'll be 30 years on July the 1st of this year. And uh, so I've, I've had quite a run. Congratulations. That's some pretty impressive longevity. And you grew the organization in just a few years from, as I understand it, about 11,000 members to 330,000, which is just incredible. What, what's the membership like now? How's the organization doing? Uh, I think we're holding our own. You know, uh, we 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 have a very good retention rate. Uh, unfortunately, the, the Catholics who are the most serious about their religion tend to be in an older group and older demographic, and so we do lose a number to death every year. Then we try to replace them. Once we once people join, uh, they tend to stay joined. But uh, it's not looking good down the road with with young people who are not as practicing. What can you talk a little bit about what the Catholic League does? Yes, it was actually founded in 1973 by Father Virgil Bloom, a political scientist at Marquette, and I took over uh, 20 years later in 1993. Our principal goal is to fight anti-Catholicism. And more broadly speaking, we're looking at religious liberty as as it impacts virtually any religion. So we want to keep the we want to have a, a a more generous understanding in law and in society of religious liberty as it affects Catholics, but uh, certainly that. Other uh, Christians and 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 Jews and and uh, Muslims and Mormons. Uh, so we're we are concerned about the precarious state of of re- religious liberty in our society. So we go way beyond just worried about Catholic bashing, uh, which tends to come from the media and the arts. We are concerned about what's going on in the schools and clearly the most pernicious force in society when it comes to a threat to religious liberty is coming from government, federal, state, and local. And unfortunately, these days, more often federal. Hmm. And now the Catholic League has made this foray into the medium of film with this uh, powerful new documentary. You've got Walt's Disenchanted Kingdom, which I reviewed for FrontPageMag.com. As I mentioned 
Bill in my opening remarks, when I was a kid, I and my family always tuned in on Sunday nights to the wonderful world of Disney, or I think the title changed a couple of times over the years. But just like Ben Carson said in the opening of your film um, that he did as well, Disney built its massive popularity on family values. And you fast forward to today, and it's on the wrong side of these very public battles and controversies in the radical left's war on the family. What happened? Well, they started listening to the minority, the very vocal and active minority of, of people on the left, uh, some of whom are involved in the LGBTQ movement. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a shame. I mean, you've got pressure from Wall Street, which is bought into this woke culture, BlackRock and others, and their idea of equity, basically selling the idea that white people are inveterate racist. Uh, that's, that's, that's the heart and soul of critical race theory. And it, buying into now transgenderism, and I say gen, transgenderism because there really is no such thing as a transgender person. You're either male or female. But it's a theological strain. And what's, what's the undertone here, what's really driving this whole idea uh, that you can uh, flip your sex, which you can't, your chromosomes are fixed, they can't never change. You can do whatever you want in terms of anatomical surgery. You cannot change your chromosomal makeup. So male is XY and the female is XX, you can't change that. But they want to make the argument, the left, that everything is fluid. There's no such thing as human nature. There's no such thing as nature's God. Everything is a social construct. There's no such thing as truth. All of that is not true. You can't change human nature. It is fixed, and it's timeless. There is such a thing as God. You may not believe in it. That's fine. But then don't be hostile to those who, us who are. Not everything is a social construct. Indeed, the culture takes its cues from nature, all right? The reason why men are more aggressive than women has to do with something called nature. To be explicit, it's called the level of testosterone. They're at war with all of that. Yeah, I often say that gender ideology is the tip of the spear of this cultural Marxist assault on our whole civilization. Would you agree with that? Yes, it is. And it's only getting worse in, in, in certain quarters. Now, I'm not a pessimist. So there are people like Erica Anderson, who most people never heard of. She was basically the first uh, transgender psychiatrist, and she treated young people, and she was all in favor of this. But in the last year or two, she said, this thing has gone too far. I want nothing to do with it. It's now become chic for teenage girls who are all confused about different kinds of things, that they want to transition to become a boy. It's, it's, it's become the hot thing in certain quarters, believe it or not. And she says, it's gone too far. I want nothing to do with it. There are people like myself, David Horowitz, others. We're speaking out against it. And I think it's like anything else. Most people know in their heart of hearts that this thing is crazy, transgender mania. And, but they're afraid to say it because they're labeled as bigots and they're intimidated. There's nothing bigoted about telling the truth. We're not, we're not, no one's out here to punish somebody and to oppress them. What we are saying is this. Stop with this idea that you want to go get your hands on little kids and say to them, are you happy being a boy? Are you happy being a girl? That's what was, was, was the, the undertone here, the driving force besides the Catholic League doing this movie on Disney. Because as everybody knows, DeSantis, the governor of Florida about a year ago, was saying, listen, there's such a thing called parental rights, and we don't think that we should be sexually engineering kids as young as kindergarten, five years of age. And so 
that's that is really at the heart of the of the, of the matter. The film's got a pretty impressive lineup of commentators. It includes you, obviously, and um, the Freedom Center founder, David Horowitz, Tony Perkins from the Family Research Council, um, Brent Bozell from the Media Research Center, and some others. Did you find that when you floated the idea about this film or you invited speakers to participate, that there were many commentators who were concerned about the state of the family in our culture today who were really eager to get on board with this and to address the damage that Disney seems to be spearheading? Yes, and, and I wanted a nice course section. Uh, we have Vivek Ramashami. He's Hinduist. He, he went to Catholic high school. We have David, who's Jewish. We have Tony Perkins. He's evangelical Protestant. Uh, Miranda is a Catholic, as is uh, Brent Pozell and myself, uh, and some of the other people that we have in there. Uh, it's, it's, it's a nice course section. Mercedes uh, Schlapp is, is Cuban-American, and she's the host of, of the movie. So we wanted a cross-section, and I chose people who are all courageous because, let's face it, Mark, there are a lot of people, including people in the public eye, who they will agree with us over a cup of coffee or over a beer that we need to speak up about these matters, but they're afraid to, and they've been intimidated. That's all the more reason why we have to speak up. We're not interested in hurting anybody. We are interested in telling the truth. What has the reaction been to the documentary so far? I mean, have you, have you had any response from Disney or uh, one way or the other, any kind of criticism or attack or, or uh, praise? Well, we've had mostly praise. Uh, of course, there's always the, the invective and the hyperbole and, and the vitriol and the hate speech. Uh, we've gotten some of that as well. We expected that. Uh, we have not yet heard... Disney. And I don't know where the Hollywood Reporter and TMZ are. Why aren't they going to Disney and asking them, what's your response to the movie? Uh, I can tell you, Mark, that from my perspective, uh, two uh, books ago, I, I did a book on clergy sexual abuse in the United States, and I talked about the role of homosexuals in the Catholic Church. And it's well documented, about 850 uh, endnotes and the like. I predicted that the Catholic left and the left in general, would either ignore it wholesale, because they can't argue with me, I've got the evidence, or they will attack me uh, in, in a ferocious manner, trying to just destroy me. They chose the former. They chose not to, to discuss it. So that's what the left does. If they think you're weak and they can get you, they will come in mass. But if they think that you've got, if you've done your homework and you've got the scholarship, They'll just try to ignore it because they don't want to draw attention to it. So far, that's been the reaction of the left and Disney. They have not spoken up. And uh, again, I take that as a, as a kind of a backhanded compliment. <laughs> yes. Are you planning to do more short documentaries like uh, Walt's Disenchanted Kingdom to address other fronts in the culture war? Because this seems like an important arena to be uh, playing in. Well, I, I, I am considering a few. Uh, obviously, when it comes to something like this, it's it's a very, very expensive proposition. So I. I report to a board of directors, and we'll be discussing that more maybe in April. Uh, but, yeah, I think it is a very important medium to get this out there because we are a, a vis visual culture, and people do prefer sometimes to watch a documentary as opposed to reading a book. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, we're, we're at least entertaining the idea. You've been in the media very often over the years, um, taking that fight to an, uh, an area that the left totally dominates, many conservative and religious leaders are focused on the political scene, and they've kind of understandably turned their backs on pop culture, but you seem to get that that's where the real battle needs to take place. Would you agree with that? I, I, I would, and and it's it's particularly disconcerting today that 
that the corporate world is affecting the pop culture. I mean, Disney's exhibit A. But, you know, you know, it used to be, Mark, when I took over this job, most of the Catholic bashing came from the media, came from Hollywood, came from education, activist organizations, the arts, familiar places where the left makes its home. But what's happened in more recent times, you actually have the corporate 500. You actually have uh, the, the, the Forbes 500. You've got Wall Street. You've got the healthcare industry. You've got the military, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I'm not saying your average rank and file member of the corporate world or the healthcare doctors and nurses, most of them are good people. And I'm certainly not saying the average soldier. I'm a veteran. But I am saying that the elite, the ruling class, the ones at the top, they bought into this uh, woke culture. They think it's chic. They're not affected by the consequences of their ideas, whether it's race or sex. And they are totally hung up on those two. It's always about race and sex, isn't it? And and so, yeah, it, we, we have to address this uh, and, and come right at it uh, and not be afraid. And I certainly know uh, David Horowitz has made his career of not being afraid, which is why I'm, I'm so pleased to have him part of this. Let's talk a little bit more about pop culture and, and some other recent examples of, of anti-Catholic bigotry specifically. As I said also in my opening remarks, I hate to give her any attention because it's clear that she desperately craves it. But Madonna, the now 64-year-old uh, former pop star who kind of built a career on anti-Catholic imagery, she did this recent photo shoot for Vanity Fair that parodies The Last Supper. And in a couple of those shots, Madonna herself poses as Jesus Christ. What, what do you think about her new photo shoot? And what is your take on, on the damage that Madonna has done to the culture over the years? Well, she, she's, she's, helped, she, she's helped to sexualize the culture, that's for certain. Uh, she's selling uh, an image of herself, which I think is degrading, and, and by extension, then degrading to young women in particular who have uh, look upon her as an icon. Uh, but you know what? She is, I don't think she has the cachet that she once had. But there, there is no end to the number of people uh, on television, for example, take Bill Maher. I mean, he's stunned that, that anyone's complaining about anti-Christian anything. It's hardly a Friday night that goes by that he doesn't take a, a shot at priests. He indicts all priests. Now, you can't indict all gays, all blacks, all Jews, all, all, all Native Americans and get away with it, and you shouldn't. But why is it that when it comes to Catholics, you've seen Jimmy Fallon, you've seen the Jay Leno, uh, David Letterman, The View, uh, and, and some of these people are, are fallen away Catholics, which tend to be the worst uh, of the Catholic bashes, quite frankly. Uh, and, and so, yeah, you, you see that there's a double standard. There are certain things that are said about priests that would never be said collectively about any other demographic group in our society. And I'm not asking us to catch up by bashing the others. I'm asking that the, the bashers treat us with the same respect they, they would Native Americans. If that's the case, then we would never complain. Exactly. I was actually going to bring up Bill Maher. You've sparred with him a few times over the years. Um, and just this last January, you wrote about an episode of his show in which he seemed genuinely confused. And you referred to this a moment ago. He seemed genuinely confused about anti-Christian bigotry. He said he just doesn't see it. And you wrote that he just doesn't get it. What is it that, uh, that you think he doesn't get? You know, you know I, what I've learned over the years, and I've had people tell me to my face, not just once, many times, the reason why this apparent double standard that you talk about, Bill, exists is because, quite frankly, you deserve it. You and your church deserve it because you've been too judgmental over the years. And, I'm, and right away, I throw up a stop sign. So wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Whatever complaints you might have about the Catholic Church, uh, if you're a Catholic, you can quit. And if you're not a Catholic, you don't have to join. 
But why is that justification for indicting tens of thousands of innocent priests, almost all of whom are good guys, because we had a couple of rotten apples? We're not allowed to do that about any other segment of the population. And we're not talking about Mel Brooks type of comedy. Mel Brooks played off the stereotypes of every demographic group, but he was never vicious. He was never insulting. He never hit below the belt. And I'm all in favor of those jabs at Catholics that he gave in Mel Brooks as well as everybody else, because it was never meant to insult. We know in terms of tonality and context, what's going on with all these others is that, no, they're saying you do deserve it. I don't like you being judgmental. Nobody is more judgmental today than the people who are the ruling class who are leading this yoke culture of ours. They're the most judgmental of everybody, and they want us all to walk in, in single file, uh, whether it's transgenderism or critical race theory. So I don't need to be lectured by these people. They're the masters of judgmentalism. Yeah, yeah let's talk about the elites for a moment. I think a big part of the problem is the is what you've referred to as the religious illiteracy among the elites, among government officials and journalists and celebrities and the like. The globalist elites today, I think, are by and large secular themselves. They move in secular circles. Uh, they consider faith to be unsophisticated at best and an obstacle at worst to their vision of the future, which includes some of these horrific things like transhumanism. What do you think about where these elites, what their utopian vision of the future means for uh, people of, of almost any faith? Well, the utopian vision, it's an excellent question, by the way. Uh, it, your utopian vision is, is one where it is a militantly secular society where religion has receded, where it has little or no influence, where you take your cues from the uh, from the professors. Now, let me tell you something. I spoke, I, I taught for 20 years, 16 as a professor. I've taught everything from the second grade to newly minted PhDs. Some of the most bizarre, unhappy, and dysfunctional people I've ever met in my entire life are professors. And some of them are just simply railing against Western civilization in America because they're, they're terribly unhappy with themselves in their own life. David Horowitz can talk to, about that, and he's actually spoken eloquently about that in the past. It's not a secret what's going on. You know, Dean Baquette, black editor-in-chief of the New York Times, said about 10 years ago, we don't get it about religion, and we, we better start learning, because journalism has failed when it comes to this. This is the, the, the editor-in-chief of the New York Times. I, I think he meant well. He's a fallen-away Catholic. But it never really caught, did it? No. You know, first of all, the whole idea of utopia, which literally means nowhere, is a very pernicious idea. Because if you don't believe that man has fallen, you don't have to accept the Catholic teaching of original sin. Obviously, I do. But if you if you have this happy idea like Rousseau and Marx that you can change everybody because human nature doesn't exist. We're all malleable. We're like a piece of honey chewing gum. You can change it, mold it any way you want. If you believe that, be careful. We've seen what's happened beginning with the French Revolution. Rousseau was the intellectual godfather to Robespierre and the reign of terror. We've seen what's happened in the Soviet Union, in, in, uh, in China, under Mao, in Pol Pot, uh, uh, Cambodia, and the like. Because these people are so convinced that they are right. And if you disagree with them, they will literally murder you by the tens of thousands. We lost about 150 million people in the 20th century in the Soviet Union and China uh, combined. I mean, Hitler was a monster, but in terms of what these people did in terms of the body count, they made him look small by comparison. 
Yes, I often say that uh, the left's utopian dreams always end in dystopian nightmares. Uh, as you as you pointed out, uh, the left has this utopian vision in which they don't really acknowledge, as conservatives do, that that humans are fallen creatures that were sinful beings and can never be perfected. Which doesn't say it doesn't mean that we don't try to uh, shouldn't try to make things better or improve things. But um, but this this idea that you can uh, genetic uh, that you can engineer society to to perfection is it leaves a lot of disaster in its wake, doesn't it? It does, and and see, the, here's the here's the nexus now, Mark. The nexus between the utopian idea and transgenderism. What do they have in common? There's no such thing as human nature. That's what they believe, and that's why you can just simply change the social structures and you'll change people's behavior. It doesn't work that way. And in the, the terms of transgenderism, they believe there's no such thing as being inherently male or inherently female. They're wrong on that. But if they believe that everything is a social construct, and that's what the utopians believe, that's what Marx believed, that's what Rousseau believed, uh, they, then you can just simply go ahead and change things. And if there's any resistance, well, those people need to be killed because they're not smart enough to figure out what the new day is coming. It always ends in bloodshed. And, and it's a very dangerous idea. Now, transgenderism is not ending in bloodshed. It's ending in taking confused people, making them more confused, messing them up psychologically and physically. And now they're trying to go back to retransition re, re back, and they're being met with resistance, and they're being bullied. You know, people talk about bullying in the schools. Why don't we talk about the young girls who are being bullied uh, into questioning their own sexuality, and maybe they should undergo some type of uh, uh, sex reassignment surgery. This is very dangerous to people psychologically and physically, and it all comes back to the rejection of human nature. That's where it always begins. You had mentioned, I think, in the film, something about how there's a big difference between tolerance and uh, affirmation. Affirmation, yes, kind of. A, and we've reached a point in our culture where celebration of this gender ideology is is practically mandatory. Well, it is. I mean, and I, I'll take a, a, an example, which sometimes you you can shed light by taking analogies. Look, I I am tolerant of people eating Brussels sprouts, but I don't want to sit next to them. I don't have to affirm them because it smells, and I don't like the odor of it. Okay, that's just me. Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, there are certain kinds of sex acts I find repulsive. That's me. I'm entitled to that. That's my taste, so to speak. Now, do I want to oppress these people? No, I don't. I think they should be tolerated. But remember, toler to be tolerated means to put up with. That's what it means. Now, the, the, the radicals in the gay community are not interested in tolerance from heterosexuals. They've made it very clear. They want affirmation. And now what we have, I'm talking about the radical LGBTQ movement. They want everybody to line up single file, uh, that we have to basically bow to this altar of militant secularism, and we have to affirm what they're doing is right and that we are wrong. Now, I'm, now, I'm not engaging any public confessions. I've, I don't consider myself wrong about this at all. I don't like it. I know a lot of things in, in society I don't like. It's one thing for me to be tolerant to these people whom I have a sharp disagreement with, and it's another thing of me to oppress them, which is wrong. And it's also another thing for me to affirm that which I find morally and philosophically and religiously uh, wrong. Don't ask me to affirm that. And that's what's going on here. It's a matter of conscience. 
What we have going on today in our society is nothing less than thought control. It's thought control in kindergarten, starts at pre-K, right up through graduate school. I've taught all these, these classes. I've seen what's going on. I monitor what's going on in education. Spent 20 years on the board of directors of the National Association of Scholars. I know what's going on in the classroom. At least, thank God, one of the good things that came out of COVID is that mothers found out what's going on in elementary school. They got a peek in the window and the manipulation of their of their children with critical race theory and transgenderism set off the alarms. And so I am not a guy who believes in an iron law of history. Things can change, and I'm optimistic that we can fight back. Yeah, let's talk about education for a moment. What What is your take on the state of education in America um, and the attitude that educators generally take toward religion? My own kids are part of a Catholic homeschooling community. Is Is that what it's going to take to revive real education in America, is, is a turn to homeschooling? Well, I'm, I'm all in favor of it, but I do think that 90% of the, of the students in this country are still going to the public schools. What we have to push harder for, and we have to join hands, particularly with minorities who are the most victimized by the public schools in the ghetto. After all, I, I taught in a ghetto in Spanish Harlem in the 70s. It was a Catholic school, and I saw the good work that was being done there. But the charter schools is something that everybody should be in favor of. It's still a public school but they're less expensive. They have parental involvement, and it's more like a privately run school. The mayor of New York City is black, Eric Adams. Just last week, his own appointed board turned down the idea that we should have expand charter schools. Lori Lightfoot in Chicago doesn't want charter schools, though they help blacks and she's black. They don't want them in San Francisco. They don't want them in, 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 in D.C., and now the latest reason why they don't want charter schools and they don't want entrance exams is because of Asians. Asians are doing too well. So much for the mantra about people of color who can't do well in our society. Asians do very well. Last time I checked, they were people of color. Nigerians do extremely well in our society. They are people of color, are they not? So instead of helping blacks, to learn and, and to do arithmetic and to understand the vital virtues of personal responsibility and perseverance and self-control, we're basically saying, we're going to take care of you. There's an article in 1988, Commentary Magazine, Charles Murray, a great uh, scholar at American Enterprise Institute, he talked about the coming of the custodial democracy, where the basically the ruling class white people would be the custodians taking care of black people. That's what's happening. It's happening at a record pace. I have a book coming out in April called The War on Virtue, How the Ruling Class is Killing the American Dream. And I detail this in, 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 in extensively. So it's not like I'm just shooting from the hip. So we got a serious problem in this country, and, and education is 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 really uh, probably the most important institution that we have to reform. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that book of yours, The War on Virtue, that's coming forward. It's coming out in late April. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, let, let's talk about the intolerance for Christianity in the United States, and not just in the U.S., but elsewhere in uh, in the Western world, a world that used to be known as Christendom. Uh, you wrote recently about this growing intolerance for Christianity, and uh, said that it's not the religious extremists who are responsible for most anti-Christian bigotry. It's militant secularists. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? 
Yes, I looked at the studies in the United States and Europe, and uh, we know there are firebrand uh, radical Muslims who have been persecuting uh, Christians. They're doing it uh, particularly in Nigeria today. Back to them for a second. Uh, the Muslims in the north against the Catholics in the south. They set a priest on fire here about 10 days ago. But in terms of Europe and the United States, the studies, studies show that while you may find some religious extremists uh, who are involved in, in, in anti-Christian uh, kind of behavior, most all of it is coming from militant seculars. The, the radical left-wing people, again, who think that we don't even have a right to exist. Now, there's a book coming out uh, in March by Thomas D. Williams called The Coming Christian Persecution. I gave a blurb for it, being published by my publisher of my next book, Sophia Institute Press. And he is very rich and detailed with information of what's going on in the Western world in particular, but not just in the Western world. He covers the entire world about Christians being persecuted. And it's a real problem. What kills me about this, Mark, is that these secularists always consider us, people of faith, to be the intolerant ones. And they believe in tolerance and diversity and inclusion, but yet they never seem to include us. Their idea of diversity is always to divide people, not to unite people. Uh, they're not tolerant about anything. They're the threat. And now we have the evidence with these studies. Uh, they really think that somehow we're going to impose our views. Look, Pope John Paul II said it better than anybody. We're not here to impose anything. We're here to propose. That's different. I wish that people who are trying to make the little sisters of the poor pay for uh, abortion-inducing drugs in their health care plan were as, as tolerant. That's where the intolerance comes from. And when you see in the Biden administration attempts to have Catholic doctors perform abortions and sex reassignment surgery against their will, that's where the imposition is coming. That's where the secular militants are shoving their values down our throats. They blame us for the very sins that they are the ones most guilty of. I'm glad you brought up this uh, topic of persecution because I was you, you've kind of anticipated my next question here. The writer Rod Dreher likes to point out that our culture is already in the grip of what he calls a soft totalitarianism and that Christians, especially Christian conservatives, especially need to prepare themselves for worsening persecution, even going so far as to mentally and spiritually prepare themselves for martyrdom. Uh, do you see darker times ahead for Christians? you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? Well, let me say, uh, I know Rod. He's a good guy, and he's done some great work. Uh, the two of us have a, have a disagreement on this, and it's a strong disagreement. If you take a look at his previous book about, uh, uh, about Benedict uh, and, and uh, what's going on in the world and how we, we should change, he, is, he basically is arguing for a retreat, and I'm not. Now, he, he pushes back and says, I'm not asking for passivity. If you read his works, that's basically he's saying is that we've lost the culture of war. We have to prepare ourselves. I'm preparing myself for combat, okay? I'm talking about moral combat, okay? So uh, quite frankly, and, and, uh, and I hope I don't have to go beyond that. So I, I think that uh, Rod's uh, idea is one that's much more passive and, and, and retreatist uh, than, than I can accept. Uh, is he right in saying that, that, that things can get worse? He is. But I, my argument is that well, it will get worse if we don't fight back. It can always get wor worse. So uh, I, I do think it's important. Uh, I think that the culture war, we've lost a lot of big battles, but nothing is over. The other side will tell you that, too. They're, they're, they're angry that they haven't won wholesale. 
And uh, what we have are two competing strains. We have a militant secular strain and a traditional moral value strain, which is, represents the original Judeo-Christian uh, ethos that what the Western civilization founded on. And which one will ultimately prevail? I don't know. But we can't go on like in this tug of war forever. And uh, I think that we have to man up and, and, and fight these people and call them out. Speaking of battle, I ask this question occasionally. Uh, my position is that our battle is not so much political, although it is partly political, of course. It's not so much political as cultural and not so much cultural as spiritual. Would you agree that we are in a spiritual battle today? Oh, without question. First of all, let me just say as a sociologist that the heart of every culture in all of history, it'll never change, is religion. So you correctly identified the spiritual crisis. There is one. Uh, how it will flush out in the end, again, remains to be seen. But I am encouraged by the number of people who are non-white Americans who are practicing their religion, not all of whom may be Christian. But there's, there are opportunities here. We have to broaden ourselves. Christians cannot live in a cocoon. We did it successfully back in 2008 uh, with Proposition 8, even if the elites overturned it with gay marriage. But you, you've seen examples of traditional Catholics, evangelical Protestants, Muslims, Mormons, and observant Jews coming together. Now, unfortunately, the one group is pulled away, and that's Mormons. They did get beaten up the most in 2008. They've become somewhat reticent. I'm hoping that some of them will rejoin us again. But even if we have Muslims and, and observant Jews and traditional Catholics and evangelical Protestants, notice I didn't say all Catholics. I didn't say all Protestants. I didn't say all Jews. There's a select group within. And within the Muslim community, let's face it, they've been fighting very well in Michigan in particular against some of this transgender stuff and, and teaching kids the most incredible sex acts at a very young age. They don't want that taught in their schools. And there's a grand opportunity. We don't have to agree with the theology of anybody. I don't care what religion you are. We have to recognize that we have to put that aside and join hands with those people who are concerned about what's happening to our culture and, and, and worry about your God uh, some other time. We've got, to, we've got to join hands. And if we do, there's enough of us to make a difference. Uh, let me get back for a second to the topic of abortion, which you brought up earlier. Um, do you feel pretty positive about about what direction the country's going in after in the wake of this uh, reversal of Roe v. Wade? Well, yes, and I, I feel I've I've been optimistic for a long time, primarily because of one word: technology. Pictures don't lie. Let's face it: the first person of any notoriety to take a look at the sonograms and stop being an abortionist was the guy who led the fight. Or Roe v. Wade, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who then later became a pro-life hero and then became a convert to Catholicism. So I am optimistic there. I do think that we have to be careful about trying not to get everything all at once. That doesn't work. I know some pro-life people uh, disagree with me. I'm talking here as a strategist. We're all on the same side of being pro-life. That doesn't mean that we're all on the same time same side in terms of logistics and strategy. And if you try to get everything, you may wind up with nothing. You get what you can and you start in with the least defensible acts, the early stages of pregnancy. We're making some progress on that. And then you move from there. Uh, if you try to get everything, you may wind up with nothing, which actually, perversely, I think there are some pro-life people who like to 
almost prefer it that way. Then they can say how morally uprighteous they are. And speaking of abortion, uh, I wanted to mention this about Nancy Pelosi, the former House Speaker who you know, famously describes herself as a devout Catholic while defending abortion. Recently, she reportedly brought in priests to perform an exorcism on her San Francisco townhouse in the wake of this uh, attack on her husband. And you told the New York Post that she seems very conflicted about her faith. Uh, what would you like to would you like to say something more about that? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to say, why don't you stop at her house? I mean, you know, I mean, this, 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 if, look, if you want to be a, a pro-abortion Catholic, that's one thing. But for you to be the Speaker of the House and to wear your Catholicism on your sleeve, that really does sound demonic to me. So uh, I don't know. This woman is so full of contradiction and so tortured, but she really does have it out for the Catholic Church and for her wonderful Bishop Archbishop Salvador Leone in San Francisco. Uh, so I think she's trying to play both sides of the street. She won't get any sympathy from me. Bill, I have to admire your fighting spirit and your optimism. I'm glad that you're fighting the good fight. Listeners, do not miss Walt's Disenchanted Kingdom. You can check it out for free on YouTube and at the Catholic League website. Uh, Bill, what is the best place for people to keep up with the writing and the work that you're doing? Are you a social media guy? Oh, yeah, we're social media. But I think, you know, the first stop should be to get go to our website, www.catholicleague, one word, catholicleague.org, O-R-G. You sign up for our emails. Everything is free. The movies for free. Everything we do is free. We don't have one of these paywalls and firewalls and all that other nonsense. Uh, everything is for free. And we can disseminate it to other people. We're on Facebook and Rumble and other social media platforms, uh, Twitter, of course. And we have our own Catholic League forum, a YouTube, YouTube channel. Uh, Mike McDonald, the director of communications, and I typically do one at the end of the week of every week. There's kind of a summation of what we've been doing. We have a monthly publication, which you would have to pay for. It's only $30 for a year, uh, $20 for senior citizens. Catalyst, a monthly journal, 16 pages long, tells you exactly what we've been doing. And what and, and so you know what you're getting for your buck. We don't just put out flyers four times a year. Fantastic. Uh, and I hope that you can convince your organization to get involved in more of these documentaries because Walt's Disenchanted Kingdom was just a great piece of work and an important piece of work. And I think there are a lot of other issues that I'm sure you'd like to address in the culture that uh, deserve are deserving of documentaries as well. Bill Donahue, thank you for coming on the Right Take podcast. Please keep fighting the good fight, sir. Thank you so much, Mark. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.